Welcome to An Apple a Day, a podcast, a resource, a community. Share your experiences and learn from others as we overcome barriers and learn to live a happy, healthy life with a disability. Welcome to the community. Here's your host, Jimmy Apple. Welcome to another episode of An Apple a Day. I'm your host, Jimmy Apple. How you feeling today, my friends? You feeling good? You feeling strong? You feeling better than you did yesterday? Excellent. You can't ask for better than that. Hey, before we start, let me remind you, an apple a day is brought to you by www.famousapple.com. Famousapple.com is the home site for this podcast. So if you get a minute, check it out. And while you're tripping around the web, you're going to want to stop by www.famousapple.com forward slash group. That's our group page for this podcast. It's called Living with a Disability. And that's very important this week because our guest this week is Spencer Bishens. And he's answering questions on the group page. So you're going to want to stop by there, especially after you listen to today's interview. You're going to want to stop by there and talk to Spencer on the group page. That's www.themisapple.com forward slash group. We have got a good one for you today. What's the one thing that's on every person's mind who's home with a disability? Come on, you know the answer. Raise your hand. You know the answer if you're if you're home on disability, you know this answer. It's social security disability. Everybody's always got this on their mind. It's either a concern a worry, or a relief, because that's our form of income. That's our safety net, Social Security disability. That's how we get our health insurance, Medicare. That's how we get our monthly income. That's how we take care of ourselves. That's how we take care of our family. That's how we put a roof over our head. That's how we get by right now, because we have a disability that stops us from working. So it's always, I won't say it's always first thing on our mind, but it's always on our mind. It's always there somewhere on our mind. And for those who just become disabled, it's a big fear because now you have to deal with a a government entity that's as big, if not bigger than the IRS, who's got forms that are just as complicated as the IRS and your fate your future actually right now sits in their hands and there's always all these rumors that circle around the department of the social security you know and you never know who to believe because the rumors can start out very small and they can grow monumental and trying to read the handbooks from social security disability they they mean well they try to put all the information in those books that they can cram in but it can make your head turn because you don't want to do the wrong thing because like i said this is how you you're taking care of yourself taking care of your family putting a roof over your head putting food on the table at the moment and paying for doctor's bills and tests and medication and it's such a big worry. Well, we have today with us Spencer Bishens, as I said. He is a former Social Security attorney. 
And you're saying, well, what good is a former Social Security attorney? Well, I'll tell you what good a former Social Security attorney is. He was a Social Security attorney for 10 years. And he knows the ins and outs. He knows how difficult the process is. Well, you know what? Sit back for a second. And I want to let Dave tell you a little bit about Spencer Bishens. So sit back, relax, and listen to what Dave has to say about Spencer. Who is Spencer Bishens? Spencer worked at the Social Security Administration and saw firsthand how the complicated regulations negatively impacted applicants. The process is long, hard, and sometimes almost impossible to navigate. When he left, he wanted to take all the knowledge he'd gained while at the SSA and turn it into something helpful for applicants. Spencer Bishens has a master's degree from the London School of Economics and a law degree from Florida State University. Working for the SSA for more than 10 years, he drafted or reviewed thousands of disability decisions. After leaving the SSA, he wanted to help demystify the complicated disability system. His first book, Social Security Disability Revealed, why it's so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it, explores the obstacles that disability claimants face as they try to access benefits. And now, back to Jimmy. Thanks a lot, Dave. Now, I have to state this clearly. The subject matter being discussed here today is for informational purposes only. As Spencer likes to say, he is an attorney, but he's not your attorney. So for any legal advice you should turn to your own attorney or legal advisor, okay? That said, let me just warn you. Some of the things you hear on today's interview may surprise you. It may not. You may already know all this stuff. But for the most part, I don't think a lot of people know everything that's going to be told today. And it may just shock you. So I want to introduce you to Spencer and as I usually say, sit back, relax. But today I'm going to tell you, fasten your seatbelts because this is going to be a wild one. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Spencer Bishens. Like I told you, we're here with Spencer Bishens. He's the former Social Security Administration attorney, and he's the author of the new book, Social Security Disability Revealed, Why It's So Hard to Access Benefits and What You Can Do About It. How are you doing today, Spencer? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to answer the questions that your listeners have sent in. Thank you for being here. I'll tell you what. The listeners are definitely, if there's one thing that everybody's listening to, it's about Social Security disability. This is one of the biggest pains in the ass that there are today. So, are you ready to take some questions? I am ready. Let's do it. Before we do it, before we do that, I just want to let people know, you are by far the, the, the biggest expert that we've had on the podcast. Now, people have heard me reading from Social Security bulletins and press releases, and that's the one side of the story. And that's the side of the story that Social Security wants you to hear. But now you're getting the 
other side of the story from the person that was actually there. You're not getting the sugar-coated part of the story, but let me just say this before we start. All the information you're getting today is for educational purposes. This, If you have a question, a legal question, I'm suggesting that you go to your own attorney. Listen to what Spence is telling you. Take the information and bring it to your own attorney. He's not your attorney. He's here to tell you the other side of the story. Okay? Am I right, Spencer? That's right. And it is one of the really important themes throughout the book. Uh, as you said, while I'm a lawyer, to all the readers out there, I'm not your lawyer. And there's an important distinction there because you have your own individual impairments. You have your own individual work history. And I talk in the book about how you need your own representative, whether that be an attorney or a non-attorney representative who you can sit down with, who you can lay everything out with. You can talk to your, with, with uh, this person about your case and you can really get an individualized and tailored assessment about the likelihood of being approved for benefits, when benefits might begin, how much your benefit check might be, whether you'd be eligible for Medicare. That's all things that I can't really help you with. So my goal in writing this book was to provide educational materials so you can understand how the process works, the difference between the two programs, how Social Security decides cases, how the case moves through the system, how a hearing might work, et cetera, I can explain to you how the processes work, but you need to talk to someone who represents you to figure out how all of that information applies to your individual circumstances. And I cover in the book how to find a representative, how to hire a representative in case you don't get along with that person, how to fire a representative and find someone new, and I also talk about how the representatives get paid because that's obviously we, we know they're professionals and they want to get paid for their time. And that's the number one question everyone has. How much is this going to cost me? It's all in the book, but the good news is it's really reasonable and these representatives are well worth their fee. Well, you already picked up a couple of the questions I have written down here. Sorry, I didn't mean to steal your thunder. <laughs> yeah, but yeah it, it, the two main themes of the book are you need a representative to, to represent your interests, to help you get your records together, to help represent you at the hearing, to tell the story you want to tell. But the other major theme of the book is that representative isn't going to handle everything. They have a role, but it's a limited role. And you as the claimant... It's your case. It's your life. It's the benefits you've paid for. So having a representative is really important. It is not a substitute for you taking ownership of your role in the process, becoming educated on the process so that you can work with that representative to present your case in the most favorable light possible. Excellent. You've, you, you've explained that very well. All right. Let's take a question here. And this one actually is from your website. Why are so many people denied right at the beginning of the process? Well, there's a few different reasons for this. And to explain why, 
we'll just go through a typical person's disability claim. Most people don't think they're going to need disability benefits. You pay in, you work, you pay into the system. You don't expect that you're going to be the person who becomes sick or injured and unable to work. It just happens. And sometimes there's unemployment and sometimes there's workers' compensation, but those benefits tend to be limited and they run out. And so a lot of times what happens is the person who hasn't been working, hasn't been earning an income, therefore doesn't have a lot of money to go pay to see doctors, has some scattered and haphazard medical records here and there, usually printed out on paper because the United States still has a very 20th century medical records keeping system. And you go to the Social Security office and you say, I want to apply for disability. But typically people aren't really very prepared. Their records aren't in good order. And so a lot of times they're just, they're not prepared to tell that story that they need to tell in order to convince that reviewer to improve their claim. And that's one of the main reasons that so many cases, over 70% are denied at that initial review. Wow. Okay. Now, here's something else that I did apply for Social Security years ago, and I didn't have an attorney when I applied, and I was approved the first time. Do you actually need an attorney to apply for benefits now, the first time you go out? So, or of course, you... I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Or do you, or can you do it on your own still? So I don't recommend that anyone DIY any legal process, particularly this one. I worked for Social Security for over 10 years. I wrote over uh, almost 2,000 decisions, and I reviewed thousands more at the Appeals Council. I saw a lot of cases where people did not have representation. And I could see that those records, those medical records were smaller, they were disorganized, they had a lot of duplicates, they didn't have the necessary information that they needed. For example, someone might have a back impairment, and in 200 pages of records, there's no MRI. Well, how are you going to prove a back impairment keeps you from working without an MRI? So it's really important to have someone who knows the system and knows the different impairments and what kind of evidence judges expect. Having said that, it's certainly not a literal requirement, and a lot of people do try and go through this process on their own. Like I said, particularly at the initial level when they first apply, most people don't think they need a representative at that point. They think, I'm sick, I'm injured, I know I can't work, I'm obviously disabled. And so they go and they apply for benefits. And as I said, over 70% of people get that first denial and they're probably all really shocked and frustrated when that happens. That does mean that almost 30% of people are being approved at that initial level. But it's not a random assortment. It's not a random sample. The people who are being proved at that initial level, for the most part, are really black and white open and shut cases. Things where they're either it's maybe it's a terminal cancer or it's a really severe case of ALS or it's a sudden acute event like a car accident and you're in the hospital for a month. Something where there's some major event that results in thousands of pages of medical records. That's, those are the kinds of cases that can be approved at the initial level. 
but for most people, that's just not going to be the case. And it's so complicated. The, the regulations are so complicated. Once you get to a hearing, it's so complicated and confusing that trying to do it without a representative, I just, I see the cases of people who are just completely lost and they're basically just crossing their fingers and hoping that the judge is going to approve that claim. But for those people, it's really a coin toss. They haven't prepared their arguments, their case in a way that's really convincing to the judge. And, and that's something that social security representatives are trained in how to do. Now playing devil's advocate, doesn't social security disability give you like a list of what you need to bring, what you need to show as evidence? Not really, because no? the thing is, every person is different. Every person has a different combination of impairments. For one person, it might just be a back disorder. Someone else may have anxiety and depression and carpal tunnel syndrome. Someone else may have been in a car accident, but before that car accident, they had PTSD from being in the military. Right. So because every person is different and every story is different, and it's usually not just one thing that prevents someone from working. Maybe it's a chronic condition combined with some sort of acute problem. Right? Maybe you could work through impairment one and impairment two, but then impairment three comes along and you just can't work anymore. I got you. And, and so when each impairment has different types of evidence and then you combine the impairments, it can get really, really confusing. I have a whole section in the book on types of evidence. And a quick disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a medical professional. So that section is not from a medical perspective, it's from a legal perspective. To meet the legal definition of disability set forth in the social security regulations, what sorts of things do you typically need to show for a judge to approve your claim? And the thing is, it's a little bit more black and white with something like a back impairment because you could have objective testing like an x-ray or an MRI. But once you start to factor in non-visible impairments like fibromyalgia, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, seizure disorder, and you start to factor in mental health impairments like anxiety, depression, and PTSD, things become a lot more complicated as far as having the evidence to prove not only your diagnosis, but also how that diagnosis impacts the mind and body. And then there's one more thing you have to show for social security, which is how those impacts on the mind and body then impact your ability to work. And people oftentimes forget about that. It's not enough to show you have medical conditions. Social security's definition is that you can't work because of your medical condition. So you also have to show have these medical issues that you have prevent you from doing a full-time job. And that's really, really complicated to do on your own without any education, training, or expertise. Okay. Next question. Is it easier when you're applying for, the, for, for Social Security disability if you're going through workers' comp prior to this? 
do those records carry over and help you in any way? I don't think that they automatically carry over, but obviously you can submit them to Social Security. And the good thing with records like workers' comp records is that they're usually really comprehensive and they involve uh, lots of physical testing. How far can you reach? How much can you lift? How long can you stand? There's lots of testing and lots of evaluations. And also the good thing is that Usually when someone's seeing a worker's comp doctor, it's over quite a long period of time. So it may be many, many months and all of those treatment sessions or not treatment, but evaluations are usually really well documented. Right. But the problem can be that the standard that those doctors are using is different from social security standard. And this is, is, where they're not exactly directly beneficial for a workers comp claim that the doctors who review those are trying to figure out usually two things one is your injury related to work did you somehow sustain it doing this job and two they try and figure out when you can go back to that particular job right the social security doesn't care where or when you sustained an injury. All they care about is your body is impacted in a way that you can't work. So in that sense, the workers' comp records are, are too narrow, but the, the problem that is in, in the second part where the workers' comp doctors might say, okay, you can't go back to that job. And you think, ah, oh, that's great. See, that proves I'm disabled except the social security's definition is can you do any work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy so if you were injured working in a warehouse even if the doctors who are reviewing your workers comp claim say you can't go back to that warehouse job that will not be sufficient to prove your disability claim because the disability judge will say okay i agree you can't go work in a warehouse Maybe you could be a cashier or a grocery bag or a ticket taker at a movie theater. And then you're not going to be found disabled under social security's rules. So the evidence can be used. The actual medical reports can be used, but they're not used in exactly the same way that they are for a worker's comp claim. And that's because the definition of disability is different. Now, now I have a question. <laughs> In that case there, wouldn't wouldn't you have to be able to go back to a job that's paying in the same area? In the like um a, a ticket taker at a movie theater wouldn't be paying the same, say, as a forklift driver in a warehouse. That's right. Well let's take an even more extreme example. Let's say we have an orthopedic surgeon who's making five hundred thousand dollars a year. Okay. Gets hurt. Uh Knee injury, maybe this person is in their 50s. Knee injury, maybe carpal tunnel syndrome in their wrists because of doing surgery for many years. This person can no longer be a surgeon. Right. And this person can't even really stand up without pain. So can't even be a doctor because doctors have to be constantly standing up and walking around an exam room. Okay. So the and maybe this person also has depression and anxiety and would be limited to unskilled work only so can't do any work requiring skills the judge could say 
okay, but this person can do light work, not involving not a lot of standing or walking, not a lot of lifting. And as long as this person can do any full-time work, even at minimum wage, like grocery bagger or ticket taker or a cashier where you could sit down on a stool. Here's a popular one that uh, comes up a lot in social security hearings, eyeglasses repairer. That's a job where you sit down and just repair eyeglasses all day long, I guess. As long as this person can do any full-time work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy, regardless of what it pays, well, I have to pay minimum wage, obviously, right? Right. That person is not disabled. No way. So, the, you, yeah, go ahead. You can take a surgeon that was, like you said, making $500,000 a month and make him an eyeglass repair person? If, if Jeff Bezos, for some reason, couldn't do his job anymore, I don't even know what his current job I don't, is. I, I don't well, know. Let's say Elon Musk. If Elon Musk could no longer run SpaceX and Tesla and he had impairments that prevented him from doing a skilled job and, and he couldn't uh, lift anything and he needed just a simple, routine, repetitive job. He, he obviously could apply for disability because he pays into the system just like everyone else. Right. As long as you pay the Social Security tax, you're, you have the insurance and you can apply for benefits. But if he's, same with anyone else, if he's found to be able to do any full-time work that exists in significant numbers of the national economy, fast food worker, elevator, the, the, the information that they use, the vocational experts at the hearings use information from the early 90s. Yeah. It hasn't been revised in 30 years. So uh, they still have jobs like telegraph operator, an elevator <laughs> operator. I've only seen an elevator operator once in my life. But if he could be an elevator operator, he's not disabled under Social Security regulations. My goodness. So how much you were earning before, totally irrelevant, except unless you're approved, and then what you get paid has a relation to how much you paid into the system. But as far as just whether or not you're disabled, the judges can look at your past work, what you did, but they don't care how much you earned. My God. Yeah, the only question is whether or not you were working uh, at the substantial gainful activity level. And the, the dis definition for all of this is in the book. But basically what that means is, are you working a full-time job at around the minimum wage level? If you can do that, you're not disabled. And if you aren't doing that but the judge finds that you could do that even with all your limitations factored in you'll be found not disabled My so yeah it's, it's a really strict standard and that's the other reason so many people are denied at the initial level is people don't understand how the agency makes decisions or how high that standard is but social security representatives understand it and they know the burden that they have to meet in order to prove their clients are disabled. Let me tell you, you you just destroyed a major rumor that goes around through the disability community. You just destroyed one big one. 
And I what's that? Th- this one that you just that this that you just explained right now, because I've heard this told in so many different ways that they have to match the salary that you were making if they want you to go back to work. And I've heard this told in so many different ways. So part two of the book is of the five-step sequential evaluation process, which is the process that Social Security uses to decide all cases. And because it's the government, there are, of course, not five steps. There are six or seven steps to the five-step sequential evaluation (laughs) process. But uh, the last chapter in that section is about step five, the last step in the process, where the judge decides all your limitations and then says, can you do any work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy? And so in that chapter, I talk about here's step five, here's what it is, here's how the judge makes that decision. And yeah, any any job that exists in significant numbers, how much you were earning before, it's just not relevant. And the reason is, is because these rules need to apply to everyone in the same way. So they can't apply a different rule to someone who was making minimum wage and to someone who was an orthopedic surgeon. They have to have the same law applying to everybody. That's also why the judge asks, can you do any job that exists in the entire national economy? Because they don't want to treat someone who lives in Manhattan different from someone who lives in Mobile, Alabama. Right. There might be fewer jobs in rural Alabama. And so they want to treat everyone exactly the same. The law applies the same to everyone. And that's why there can be no salary matching. The really the question, if you think about it, it boils down to this. Can you work full time? Right. If you have impairments that prevent you from doing full time work, you'll be found disabled under Social Security's regulations. If the judge finds that your impairments even with your impairments and your limitations, you can do some full-time work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy. That claim will be denied. And I wrote a lot of both. I wrote a lot of favorable decisions and I wrote a lot of unfavorable decisions. And those favorable decisions, they really do have a very convincing amount of evidence. You cannot slip through the cracks and be approved. You really have to have a solid case with really good evidence to show the judge that you can't do any full-time work. I have another question that kind of falls into the same area. Does Social Security suspend your benefits if you receive a settlement, say from an accident or an inheritance, or if you win the lottery? That, those are all great questions, and there's a couple different answers, and they appear in a couple different parts of the book. The first part of the book is discussing the difference between the SSDI program, which is Social Security Disability Insurance, and SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income. Right. And the reason I'm bringing this up is it impacts the question you just asked, because SSDI is an earned benefit. And so therefore, while benefits can end or be offset, there are fewer ways that that can happen. SSI is not funded through the social security tax. It's funded through regular income taxes. 
it's really for people who don't qualify, who never didn't pay into the system or didn't pay enough or didn't earn enough credits. They don't have the credits for SSDI. And that's a way more unstable system because there are so many different ways that those benefits can end. Um, for example, if, if someone tries to help you out by buying you some groceries or giving you a couch to crash on for a little while, that's considered income in kind and that can reduce your supplemental security income benefits. Really? So yeah, it's, so, so there are so many things that can, and the reason is because those benefits are there really just to make sure you're, you're not homeless and you don't starve to put it bluntly. And so, for example, if you're incarcerated, your SSI benefits will be suspended. And if you're incarcerated for more than 12 months, they're terminated completely. And that's because the government doesn't need to give you money for food and shelter, because even though you haven't asked for it, the government <laughs> is giving you food and shelter. So, so that's a way that you're benefit. But anyway, let's get back to SSDI because right. SSDI, there are fewer ways that that can happen, but there are ways that your benefits can end. Um, and there are offsets for things like workers comp and but, but not something like if you have an inheritance, because an, an inheritance isn't a taxable event, right? Whereas workers' comp is considered income. Right. So those rules are all unbelievably complicated and complex and just too much to get into now. But I will say this. If somehow you do get into this situation and your benefit should have been reduced, you might get something called an overpayment which is where social security says, oops, we paid you too much. We paid you 10. We were supposed to pay you six. You need to pay us this four back, please. And I do cover overpayments in the book because there's a specific way to handle those and those can be appealed. So if you get a decision you don't like, you don't have to just settle for it. If you think you have a good case for an appeal, you can appeal. And I talk about how you appeal, how that works in the book. Here's the, uh, another part of this. If before you got your settlement, but I mean, before you were approved for social security disability or when you're applying, yeah, would that affect you if you received an inheritance right before that or an accident settlement or you won the lottery? When you're applying, if you had that in the bank, would that affect you when you're applying for Social Security disability? So full disclaimer here, that's a payment issue. And I didn't work in a payment center. I worked in a hearing office at the Appeals Council. So almost all of the cases that I handled were, is the person medically and vocationally okay. disabled? I did handle some overpayment cases where I would see some issues like that come up but it was very little of what I did because usually what happens is if you're approved and then you have something like that come up, or even just if you go back to work, you'll let social security know and a payment center then adjusts your payment and they send you a letter, right? And they say, here's what you were getting. We have this information. Here's what you're now supposed to be getting. So I can't answer your question 
Exactly, but I can say that once you apply for benefits, your application is active at that point, which means even if you're late, two years later found disabled, the agency will go back and pay you that time for that time uh, after you applied. It's called a, a past due benefits because you're due to receive them, but it's in the past, which means uh, events like work activity or settlements would also come into play. And that wouldn't be so much, I don't think the judge would really care at that point if you got a settlement. Again, the judge could find you disabled. That would really be more for the payment center to decide, do we need to do an offset on that person's past due benefits before we pay them? Okay. All right. Now you just, you just this is a perfect lead in. Going on to the back due benefits that you just spoke about. Yes. If a person applying for benefits has finally been approved after two appeals, say, and is due yes. and is due back money, and has a de has dependent children, do the dependent children also receive retroactive benefits? I have to be completely honest with you. I don't know. My guess would be yes. So. It is a separate, I know what you're talking about. It is a separate benefit, even though it's related to the same claim. Those are considered benefits due to the, the beneficiaries, the dependent children. And so I would guess if the person's getting benefits all the way back, that those auxiliary claims would also apply. And just in case people are wondering, well, how far back could you possibly go? I have written decisions. Like you said, they went through multiple appeals. It took many years. And I've written decisions that go all the way back 10 years. Wow. You can imagine how how big that, that past due benefits check would have been. <laughs> yes. But the person applied. They got denied. They appealed. It went to federal court. It came back. It happened a second time. Maybe it even happened a third time. But the court kept finding error, so they kept sending it back to Social Security, and eventually, you know, if, if they eventually decide that should be paid, yeah, that person was due benefits that entire time, so they're definitely entitled to receive them. One thing, it's not the question you asked, but I, it's related, so I just want to make sure your listeners understand. With SSDI, you can even get paid before you apply. And that's not the case with SSI. With SSI, you cannot get paid before you apply. So if you think you're disabled, it's best to apply as soon as possible. With SSDI, it's also best to apply as soon as possible, but you can actually get paid up to 12 months before you apply. How, and yeah, go ahead. How is that even possible? Because the definition of disability for social security is inability is a medical impairment that prevents you from doing work that exists in significant numbers in the national economy for a period of 12 continuous months. And so think about this from a theoretical standpoint. Let's say you have some kind of acute injury today right. in July of 22. Maybe you don't know if it's going to prevent you from working for 12 months. So you wait until July of 23. Now you know it's preventing you from working for 12 months. So now you apply in July of 23. 
well, that's kind of unfair. You just waited 12 months to see if you could meet the definition of disability. Why shouldn't you get paid for that time? Well, so Social Security's regulations say, you're right. So we're going to go ahead and give you, as long, of course, you have to still prove you were disabled mm -hmm. during that time. But you, if you were disabled for 12 months before you even apply, you can get paid up to 12 months of retroactive benefits. And that's why. It's because they're asking, they're telling you you need to be disabled for 12 months. And so it would be unreasonable to make you wait those 12 months. You don't have to wait those 12 months, but the rule suggests you should wait those 12 months and then apply to make sure that you're disabled for a full 12 months. Well, it would be really unfair to then not pay you for those 12 months that you couldn't work. <laughs> Nobody so, told me that. So that's the theory of of why that's the case and why it's it's 12 months. So yeah, if you couldn't work for a full year before your application, or even if you could work, but maybe it was only for a little bit of time, that's called an unsuccessful work attempt and it doesn't count. And I explain what that is in the book. And that means you can actually have tried working and unsuccessful. And if the judge finds all the requirements are met, they don't hold that against you. It's considered that you weren't working. For a full 12 months, you can get paid uh, during that time. Well, there's reason alone to buy this book. That's yeah. That is reason alone to buy this book. Yeah, and, and people don't realize that. They think, well, if I worked, I worked, right? If I earned at the substantial gainful activity level, like what else is there to it? Well, there's the unsuccessful work attempts where, and there's several requirements and I lay them all out in the book and I have a, an example. And that's something I do throughout the book is I don't just say, here's the rule. And then here's the rule in plain language. I think of an example because it's just hard to understand some of these things, especially these complicated concepts without an example. And so I go through an example of, well, if someone stops working here, does that meet the definition of an unsuccessful work attempt? If well, it does, it's like it never happened. Well, that's one thing I have to say about your book, because I've been reading it for the last couple of weeks. And when I'm reading it and talking to you right now, the way we're talking, it's exactly the same. Your book isn't written as if you're some kind of machine. Your book is written in very plain, very plain language. It's as if we're holding the same conversation when I'm reading the book. It's not written like you're some kind of scholar sitting up on a cloud talking down to people. You, you talk in very plain English in the book is the only way I can explain it. It's, it's a very easy book to digest. And I ha I ha I've been meaning to tell you that in our last couple of conversations. It's Thank you. And, and that, it's not easy to write a book about this social security disability like that because some of these concepts are so complicated and there's so many rules, no, you, elements, and exceptions. No, you took on the beast with this one. You, yeah, you, but, I, but I wanted to write the book as though, like right now, as though I was sitting next to you and explaining it to you and saying, here's the rule. And, you know, let's state it another way. And here's an example. I wanted the person to feel like I was sitting on the couch with them, talking to them and explaining it to them. Well, you've succeeded. I'll tell you that.
because I, I'm listening to the way you're explaining it now, and this is exactly the way you explain it in the book. There's no BS. There's no I'm walking on water and you have to listen to me. You you shoot right from the hip, just like you're doing now, and you explain it in plain English, layman's terms. There's no uh, excuse excuse my my language. There's no lawyer talk. It's straight straight from the hip with you. And, and that's one of the reasons it's so important to read the book, even if you have your own representative, because the representatives handle a lot of cases and they don't have the time or maybe the know-how to be able to explain some of these concepts in plain language. So if you can go in knowing what's in the book, then when your lawyer says, were you working before your application? You can say, yes, but it's an unsuccessful work attempt and here's why. And your lawyer might look at you like, where did you go to law school? <laughs> but, but, but your interview will be quicker. It'll be easy. They'll know that you know the system. You'll, you'll be able to have a conversation with your representative in a much more effective manner if, and maybe it's not an unsuccessful work attempt. And maybe you, your lawyer asks, you know, well, were you working? And you could say, yeah, I was, but here's the problem. And your lawyer will say, well, yeah, you're right. That, that is a problem. Let's see how, let's work together and see how we can get around that. Exactly. So yeah, having this knowledge, understanding these, these complicated concepts before you go into the process or even, you know, if you're already in the process, it's never too late to start. And this um, isn't, this isn't the type of book that you have to sit down and read cover to cover. You can pick and choose what you want to read in this book. Pick the, pick the problem that you're having right at this moment and go to it. But I'll tell you what, reading it cover to cover won't hurt you. Not at all. Certainly. And that's certainly the case if you're early on in the process. Part three is about the hearing level. You don't need to know about the hearing level if you're just now filing your application. That's absolutely true. But when that first denial comes in, even though your hearing might be a year away, maybe you want to flip through and start reading part three and find out what you're in for so that you know what to expect and so nothing gets thrown at you last minute. And similarly, if you've gone through the process and you got denied, you might want to start with the appeals chapter, but it couldn't hurt to go back and read the first couple parts and to help you understand why you were denied at each step of the process and maybe help you understand why that judge possibly had already decided to deny your claim before he even walked into the hearing room. And another thing, even if you already have Social Security disability benefits, this is a good reference book for you to have in your collection. Because, believe it or not, you may already have benefits, but they can be taken away. And you might want to know why. Well, not might. You definitely need to know why. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that is in there. It's a, there's a chapter called When Benefits End. And we already touched on that a little bit. But yeah, even if you have SSDI benefits... Your benefits are not safe. And that means your Medicare coverage is also not safe. Because if you're not 65, 
your Medicare coverage is only there because you're, uh, you're an SSDI beneficiary. If your SSDI benefits go away, your Medicare also goes away. So it's really important to know what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? I need to understand how benefits can be taken away so that I don't end up in it with a situation where I accidentally fall into this trap of losing benefits that I worked really hard to get. That's right. And this is a good reference book, no matter what way you look at it. It's a good reference book for the price of the book. It's a good reference book to have in your collection as a Social Security recipient. All right. As I've said many a times in this podcast, your new job is to take care of your health and take care of your benefits. This is how you're making your living. This is how you're taking care of yourself is your Social Security benefits. Invest in yourself. And this is very important. Spencer, I got a couple of other questions. If you have a couple more minutes that I can ask you. Yeah, very, yeah let's do it. Very important. Because these rumors have gone around. You know, you know how you get these uh, notices from Social Security? Usually they come every three years or every seven years sometimes. They, they're the updates that they send out to right. people on and um, what happens if you don't fill these forms out and send them back? If you just get it and put it away? Because I know people, and every time, you know when they're coming out, because people will email me and say, Jimmy, I got this form from Social Security, and I don't know what to do. Because Is this a, a form that beneficiaries get, people who are receiving benefits? That are, that are receiving benefits. Does it have medical questions, have, questions about your impairments? Exactly. The updates. Ah, okay. And people freak so, out about it all the time. Uh, so there's no reason to freak out, but there's definitely a need to understand what's happening. Uh, I have obviously never received one because I'm not a Social Security beneficiary, but I know exactly what you're talking about. This is in the book. It's called, uh, I think it's in the One Benefits End chapter. It's called a Continuing Disability Review. Exactly. And what that means is just because you've been approved for benefits doesn't mean you're going to get benefits all the way up to your full retirement age. Social Security will go back and review your situation periodically in most cases and see if you're still disabled. And that's actually understandable if you think about it, right? Because these are taxpayer-funded benefits. And the whole point is that you were found unable to work, but not necessarily permanently. Lots of people have conditions. They're found unable to work. They're given Medicare benefits. They can get medical treatment, maybe rehabilitation. And maybe they can go back to work. So it's understandable why Social Security does this. But you have to be very careful and, and understand that at some point this is probably coming. Does it mean your benefits are going to go away? No, not necessarily. It does mean Social Security is reviewing your case. And so you can't ignore these. If you ignore anything from Social Security, they'll say you didn't cooperate and they'll just automatically take away your benefits. That's the worst thing you can do. So you have to cooperate. This goes back to something you actually just said a few minutes ago, which is if you're a beneficiary, your full-time job should be focusing on your health and focusing on your benefits, exactly. which means 
just because you got benefits, you don't get to stop collecting your medical records. Right. You have to keep your medical records going and up to date and make sure that everything is documented. All of your impairments and the way that they prevent you from working, that all needs to stay fully up to date. So that once you get this continuing disability review letter, you're prepared. You can gather your medical records. You can send them to Social Security. You can make sure that Social Security understands everything that's happened since the decision, whether it be an initial determination or a, a hearing judge saying you were disabled. Uh, you you want to make sure that the agency understands everything that's happened up till that point. The other thing is that may not be enough. Social Security may say, thank you for sending us your records. We need you to go see our doctor or our psychiatrist or our psychologist. Right. And you don't have a choice in that either, right? Because you, you the claimant, have asked for these benefits. This is Social Security's way of almost think of this as like starting your case over again, except this time the burden is on, on you, the claimant, to prove you're disabled. The burden actually shifts and it's on the government to prove that you're not. So that's a good thing. But you still have to cooperate. You still have to go see their doctor. You still have to make this argument. And it's possible that you might lose that initial determination again and have to request a hearing with an administrative law judge. And it's the same judges that handle first-time disability cases. They also sometimes get CDR cases. And what they're looking at is to see what your, everything I just talked about. How does your medical condition, how did it affect you then when you were found disabled? How does it affect you now? What changes have there been? Have you been working since that time? What do your updated records say? What did the new report from Social Security's doctor say? And of course, you get to testify at the hearing. And uh, it is equally important if you can get a representative to have a representative for that, particularly if you never had a hearing the first time around. There's a lot of people who get approved at the initial determination, but then they get a CDR, their benefits get terminated, and that's their first time going to a hearing. And so if that's you, if that's your situation, go back and read part three of the book about hearings, and it'll explain who the judges are, who the attorneys are who write the decisions, that was my role, who the other staff are, what they do, how they interact, what their motivations are, all of that's in part three of the book. Here's another one, still related to these, uh, these forms. Yeah. Now, I had got, I can't tell you how many people wrote questions about these forms, and I tried to condense everything about this. Okay. <laughs> what happens if you, quote, unquote, mistakenly put the wrong info on this form? I mean, Social Security understands that not everything is going to be literally correct. And that's especially true if you have anxiety or other mental uh, health impairments that maybe cause some forgetfulness. So you could probably have help filling out the forms. Again, I've never filled out these forms myself. Right. Let's, let's put this into plain language what these forms are. Instead of you applying for disability, this is basically the government applying for you to not get disability. 
It's exactly the opposite. Okay. Instead of you saying I should have these benefits, this is the government saying we think maybe you shouldn't. Okay. And so they initiate the process. And but just like when you first apply, the government has to be part of it. Well, when the government initiates this and says we think maybe you're not disabled anymore, of course you have to be part of the process and explain to them, well, no, that's not the full story. Here are my updated records. If something is not exactly accurate, if it's probably not a huge deal, but obviously everyone should try and make sure that everything you send to Social Security is accurate. Read it twice, sleep on it, read it the next day, have someone else look at it. It, it really is best to give them complete, as complete information and as accurate information as possible so that they so there's no delays in the processing of your claim. Right. Now, one last question. I'm going to, because the rest of them kind of redundant. Does anyone actually look at these forms or does it pass through a computer just to make sure it's filed? This is a great question. And people ask this about all levels of review. Like when I apply for disability, does anyone actually look at my medical records? And as someone who looked at hundreds and hundreds of pages of medical records for thousands of cases i can tell you yes <laughs> everything gets looked at by humans and and by more than one person as well okay so these forms think of these forms as really similar to your initial application right except instead of applying to get benefits you're basically applying to keep your benefits so that's why it takes three months to get a response. It takes three months to get a response because there's tens of thousands of other people across the country applying for benefits or applying to keep their benefits. Over a million people apply for benefits every year. I think it was a million and a half a couple of years ago. And about 2015-ish, it was 2 million people wow. applying for benefits every year. And Social Security, yeah, they have a lot of employees but there are a lot of cases. So yes, it gets looked at, but what happens is it goes into a queue and gets assigned to a local office in your state. And these are not lazy government employees. You might envision like people hanging around the water cooler and maybe they looked at a case today. That is definitely not what's happening. They're probably looking at eight to 15 cases every day. So it's actually the opposite of the problem that a lot of people think. People think like, oh, these government employees aren't doing anything. Well, it's actually the opposite problem where they may only look at your case for half an hour or an hour because they're so overwhelmed. But social security reviewers and at the hearing level, the attorneys and judges are really highly specially trained. So they know what to look for. So even if you have a thousand pages of medical records, a highly trained social security employee can get, believe it or not, can get through that and know a lot about you in an hour because you learn how to look through records selectively. So I'll give you an example. If I know the person's got a back impairment, I'm not looking at their blood work right? or you know, when they stubs their toe or when they fell and went to the emergency. Well, maybe that, because there might be an x-ray involved. 
But if I know it's a back impairment, I'm looking for orthopedic records, an MRI. So the employees are highly trained on what to look for. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. And they, will de- and they will definitely look at your record. And if it's a continuing disability review where you've already been found disabled, they'll go back and they'll look at your prior record and the decision and why it found you disabled, what impairments it found you disabled based on. They'll look at the amount of time between when you were found disabled and that current date. And then they'll look and see what changed. So the story that you have to tell, that's why you have to tell it because that's the story that they're reading. Right. And you want to tell the agency the story that you know they're going to read so that they have it in an organized fashion. And a lot of people are found to have just their disability continues. The reviewer looks at it and says, yeah, these records show this person's been getting treatment. They're trying their best. No improvement. Disability continues. Um, And some people, of course, get denied and have to go to a judge. And sometimes the judge will decide, overrule that and say, no, I disagree with the state agency. I think disability continues. Clearly, this person still can't work. And sometimes people will get denied. So it's really, it's nothing to freak out about or to be afraid of. The best way to think about it is almost like your case is starting over. And it's not because they have the information from your prior record and they have that decision that found you disabled. But effectively, as the claimant, you really are starting the process at the beginning, having to prove why you should keep those benefits. In all honesty, I've I've known maybe a handful of people who have gotten these notices, and they've they've lost their benefits. But you want to know something? I I knew right from the beginning when I first met them that they shouldn't have been receiving benefits to begin with. Well, that's that's a bit of a touchy subject because. Uh, at least with me, because one of the things that I didn't understand before I started with Social Security and that I think a lot of people have a hard time understanding is you can't look at someone and tell whether they're disabled. There are just so many non-visible or mental health impairments that none of us can really judge, well, except for the judges anyway, someone else's condition. But the only reason the judges get to judge someone else's condition is that they have all that person's medical records. Well, when when somebody tells you they have a back uh, injury and they can't work, but yet they're putting a roof on their house. Yeah. And and judges take that sort of thing into account. Um, Someone will, that'll happen. The person will fall off the roof, go to the emergency room, and, you know, I'll sit there, be, sitting there, be looking at a record, I'll see an x-ray, and then I'll look at why the person was in the emergency room to start with, and it'll say, was redoing their neighbor's roof. <laughs> and, you know, the judges look at that, and they'll, they'll, at the hearing, they'll say, why can't you work? Oh, my back impairment. Well, what, how does that affect you? Well, I can't stand up for long periods. Okay, but on page 147, you were standing on a roof. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, you can't get something like that by the judges. But, um, but yeah, maybe that person had an impairment that prevented them from working, and they improved. 
right? Yeah. And when when you improve, you have to tell Social Security. Um, well, and if if you don't, they'll catch you. Well, I'm talking I'm talking about a while back, probably before you were in Germany. Well, back. one other thing one one other thing that you bring up actually that's in the book that's super important. And this tends to happen, this happens with applicants, but it also tends to happen, uh, I think, even more with beneficiaries. Um, when the agency does a continuing disability review, if someone gets a suspicion for that you're not disabled for any reason, it, someone within the agency, they can call out uh, who this investigative team. I like to colloquially refer to them as the disability cops. Right. Um, and that's not what they, I'm, they have an official name. And I, and I talk about this investigative team in the book, but the thing with this investigative team is by the time they make contact with you and let you know that they're looking into your situation, they've already been observing you in a clandestine manner. They've been following you around. They've been looking at you through binoculars. Like it's real movie Hollywood type stuff. And they write a thorough report and they'll say, you know, on this day at this time, I observed the person lift grocery bags into their car, or I observed this person working on their neighbor's roof. And they always make contact with you after all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's really, so it's really important, obviously, to not lie to anyone, including these people, but it is important to understand that you could be watched by social, it's government benefits. So the government has a right to make sure that you're entitled to those benefits. And so the government could send one of these disability cops out to observe you. So I guess if you, the thing is, if you can stand on your neighbor's roof, then maybe you need to think about whether or not you can actually just go back to work and tell social security you're not disabled anymore. Exactly. Because what you don't wanna do is get yourself into trouble where you fill out a form under penalty of perjury saying you can't stand, and then a federal law enforcement official sees you standing on someone's roof. Because well, you know, now you're talking perjury, which is a federal crime, and you don't want that. So if you can go back to work, you should go back to work, and you should tell Social Security, I went back to work. One thing and I... actually, actually, you can go back to work and still get benefits. Did you know that? For, for nine months. Yes, for up to nine months. Or even longer if it's under a certain amount. As long as you right. stay under the trial work period amount, those months don't even count. But people think, oh, if I go back to work, I lose my benefits immediately. But that's not necessarily true. Social Security wants to try and encourage you to go back to work if you can. One thing I, I personally have no, no use for is someone that's going to cheat the system because the people that actually need this system have to jump through hoops. And when you get someone that's cheating the system, they're taking money away from people that actually need it and benefits from people that actually need this system. I have zero tolerance for cheaters. I so zero. appreciate that you brought this up because I, as you can probably imagine, I've heard a sentiment similar to that for as long as I've worked at Social Security. And obviously we know that Fraud, waste, and abuse is a, a term we see sometimes on the news or in politics. So I thought it was really important to address that in the book. So I have a whole chapter 
about fraud, waste, and abuse in the book and why it's really not a significant problem within Social Security. I know that they try to weed it out. I know, but still, if you look, if you look, I'm sorry. That I know people have invisible, invisible ailments, heart disease, stuff like that, mental illness. But there are so many people out there, and I, I'm, I'm, I'll be the first one to tell you. I'll report it. I'll report it when I know somebody is actually faking it. I'll report it, and it's, it, it's, it's terrible. It's actually terrible, and I, you know, you may call me a narc, call me whatever you want. I know too many people that actually need Social Security disability benefits, and that they're, they're being forced to jump through hoops. They're getting, they're getting denied, denied, denied. Here, I'll tell you a story real quick. I had a friend of mine when he was younger. Now he's he's retired now and what have you. But when he was younger in Long Island, New York. He was playing in the rail yards, and, which he shouldn't have been. They were playing cowboys and Indians, whatever it was. He was 12 years old. On, <laughs> he was running on top of a, a parked uh, rail car, and he slipped. And what do you do the first thing when you slip? You reach out to grab something, right? He re- yeah. He reached out with his left hand and grabbed a high-power wire. He fried himself on the whole left side of his body. Fried his left arm, fried his left leg. He was in the hospital for months. On his 13th birthday, they amputated his left arm. And shortly thereafter, they had to amputate his left leg. Well, he adapted, what have you, whatever it was. He, he made it through life. I met him later on in life. He applied for Social Security. He got denied. He had SSI growing up, his parents, what have you. But he went on. He went on to college and... He, he did all right for himself, but he had several heart attacks. He had several strokes. He, he kept on applying. They said, you know, if your condition worsens, come back. Well, <laughs> eventually he said he was going to kill himself. They gave him Social Security disability for mental disease. Here was a guy that he just couldn't handle it, but he kept on getting denied, denied, denied. The guy had one arm, one leg, but other people, they were getting it for, uh, what do you call it, asthma, they were getting it for, for these other diseases. Here was a guy that was trying, trying, trying. He was supporting himself by delivering pizza, believe it or not. And I see other people that are just faking it, and it just kills me. Well, I, I understand that it can be hard sometimes to... It, it can be really confusing. How is someone with asthma getting disability and this someone who had a a leg or an arm amputated isn't. I will say I have written respiratory impairment decisions before. And there are, um, I talk about this in part two of the book with, with step three of the sequential evaluation talks about the listings. Mm -hmm. And these are basically for your listeners who don't know, there are two different ways you can be approved for benefits. One is vocationally, you can't work, but actually even before that, there are these listed impairments in the social security regulations. And if you meet certain medical requirements, you're automatically improved. They don't ask you about whether you can work. You're just approved only on a medical basis. And it's really, really strict. It's really hard to meet these listings. And there are a lot of requirements, but there are a lot of, there are listings for a variety of impairments. And there is a section for respiratory impairments 
and I know there's a, a COPD asthma listing, and I have written cases approving people meet based on meeting that listing. So it, it might be hard to believe to think like, oh, this person just has asthma, but to meet that listing, your asthma or COPD has to be so bad that like this is someone who's being regularly hospitalized and being put on a ventilator and there are ways to measure lung capacity and if you know if i see in the medical records that your lung capacity your volume is low enough and you meet a listing the judge will say oh yeah that's a favorable decision and i as the judge's assistant i'll i'll write a favorable decision and then I might get a case right after that where the person had a leg amputated and they don't meet any specific listing because the listing for that impairment requires a handheld device where you need to use both hands. So if you need a walker, you meet the listing. But if you only need a cane, that's not both hands. You wouldn't meet the listing. And so that person may end up being found able to do sit down sedentary work and be found not disabled. I know that's it's really tough to compare people with different impairments to compare uh, a severe knee impairment where you can't stand up with PTSD, for example. But that doesn't mean that the person who has asthma or PTSD can work. Their, their impairments are different, but they may very well be just as severe in the sense that it prevents people from working. I mean, I saw so many mental health impairments throughout my time with the agency. A lot of PTSD impairments were veterans, people who had served in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, and and the, the VA records in those cases tended to be extensive. And sure, that person wasn't missing a leg, but I, when I had a case like that and the judge decided it was going to be a favorable decision, I had no problems finding enough evidence from the VA and statements from doctors to support a finding of disability. Sure. So just getting back to your initial point about people abusing the system, just from my perspective, I could only obviously speak from my perspective and the cases I wrote and every, every case I had, every single one, the whole time I worked at the agency, the person had been denied at least once because to get to the hearing level and the appeals level, you have to at least be denied at that initial determination. Every single case I had, the person was denied at least once. And I wrote or reviewed thousands and thousands of favorable decisions. And I also wrote a lot of unfavorable decisions where I thought the claim should have been approved and the judge didn't want to approve it. And I, there are many times that I would try and convince the judge and I'd be successful. And there are many times that I would try and convince the judge that the person was disabled and it should be paid. And the judge would say, nope that's a denial, write it as a denial. And that was my job. I had to write it as a denial. But the one thing that I really, even for unfavorable cases, even for denials, I really didn't see abusing the system. Someone can have, as you pointed out, someone can have medical conditions and be found not disabled. That does not mean they're abusing the system. 
if you've worked, paid the tax, earned the credits, and you have the insurance, you have a right to file a claim and make your argument to the judge. And you win some, you lose some, but anyone who applies for disability because they have a medical impairment and they truly believe they're unable to work, I do not believe that that person is abusing the system. I think they're oh, I utilize, utilizing the system that's supposed to be there to serve them. If they truly believe they have a, a, a an injury or a disability, no, they're not. They're not abusing the system. But if they if they believe that they are going to be able to get a free ride, they're abusing the system. I could never understand somebody thinking that people on disability are somehow getting a free ride. Yeah, and, and the thing is, it, it just doesn't happen because of the extent of the medical records that you have to have to show the initial level, and then you have to show the hearing scheduler looks at, at the size of the record, and then the front office staff, and then the judge looks at and, and all of your medical records get looked at. And the extent of what you have to prove, again, uh, this is a good summary near the end here, that you have conditions how they impact your mind and body and that they prevent you from working and you have to show that for a full 12 months and you have to show that back to your alleged onset date it's just there's so much that goes into proving a disability claim that anyone who thinks like oh i'll just say i'm disabled and get social security disability it's that's a myth that just isn't happening well, I hope I hope you're right. I hope you're 100% right. But let me just say this. Everybody out there, everybody that's hearing this should pick up a copy of Social Security Disability Revealed. Why it's so hard to access benefits and what you can do about it. Whether you have Social Security Disability now or you're just applying for it. This is a book that should be on your desk, in your bookcase, on your living room table, on your end table, on your nightstand. This book should be with you. It's a great reference book. It's an easy read. And Spencer, the way he's talking to, talking to us right now, that's the way the book reads to you. You're going to think that he's sitting there talking to you, even when you're in bed, so you know. Who knows, he might get friendly. But this book is such an easy read and it's chock full of information that you won't get anywhere else other than in this book. Nobody else is going to give you the information that you're going to get out of this book. Trust me on this. Spencer, this has been eye-opening today. Eye-opening, absolutely eye-opening. And I yeah, I want to. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been great. I just want to say one thing. The book is a lot of things, but it is a paperback. So the one thing it is not is a coaster. <laughs> so if you keep it on your coffee table, just maybe move it to the side of the coffee table. <laughs> I want it on the coffee table, so, so it's there, so that it's in front of their face every hey. day. Hey, uh, a, a book about Social Security with coffee stains on it is still a book about Social Security. That's right. No matter what, keep it in your back pocket. It's a, it's a paperback. <laughs> you can get it on your Kindle. You can get it on a paperback. And don't worry. 
I'm going to have all expenses contact information in the show notes for this for this episode. I'm going to have where you can pick up the book, everything. And Spencer, is there a place that people can get in contact with you if they want to? Uh, the best place for information, all the information about the book, uh, including a link uh, to hear this podcast, will be bishonspublishing.com. That's B-I-S-H-I-N-S publishing.com. He's got a description of the book, all the places to buy it. Uh, you can listen. You, you can click and listen to this episode and also links to our social media accounts if you want to follow us on social media. And like I said, if you didn't get that, that'll be in the show notes for this episode. Spencer, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And I'm sure everyone else did today. And I'm sure you're going to hear from people. They're probably going to be I, asking you questions. <laughs> well, I hope so. Um, you can uh, send an email. There's a link to send an email on the website. And yeah, it's, it's, it's important to be educated. So questions are great because that means people are taking an interest in and taking ownership of their role in the process and not just leaving everything to their representative. All right, Spencer, it's been great. I hope to talk to you again real soon. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I'd like to thank Spencer Bishens for being with us today. And I have to tell you, in all honesty, I've read his book. And on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, I'd rate it an 11. The book is an easy read. It's written in layman's terms. There's no $30 lawyer's words in there. You can understand this book. And I've compared it to some of the terms and issues in Social Security's handbooks. And I can see now more clearly, I can read the Social Security books more clearly by using Spencer's books as a reference. And it all makes sense. It all makes sense. So I recommend this book. I truly do. I think it belongs in everyone's bookcase. Anyone that's on Social Security disability should have this book. Anyone that's just now applying for Social Security disability should have this book. Anyone who knows someone that's on Social Security disability, whether it's a spouse or a parent or a son or a daughter, you should have this book for them. If you're taking care of them, you should have this book. Give it to them as a gift. It's, it's that good. I don't recommend things like this, but this book is that good. So I want to, again, thank you, Spencer, for being with us today. Thank you for being on Living with a Disability over at www.famousapple.com forward slash group. Spencer's over there answering questions right now as we speak. So if you got a question for him, go over there and ask him while he's still there. And I want to remind you guys of something. Things can always be worse. That's right. Someone somewhere right now is wishing that they were in your position. So things can always be worse. On our next episode of An Apple a Day, 
we have Melissa Mayer. Now, there's a lot about Melissa. I can't explain it all right now, but think about this. Her husband needed a kidney. There was no thought. There was no, I'll think about it. She gave her husband a kidney right away. Would you do it? Well, Melissa's going to be with us next week, and she's going to tell us that story. That's a phenomenal love story. That's a couple that's going to be together for the rest of their lives. But you have to hear the story. And there's so much more to this story than just that. Like I said, I can't go into all of it right now. But look for the look for the slice of the apple early next week. And it'll explain more. But thanks again for being here today. Thanks again, Spencer, for being with us. And we'll talk again real soon. Hey, you've been listening to An Apple a Day. My name is Jimmy Apple. Have a really good one, my friends. Thanks for listening to An Apple a Day with Jimmy Apple, your gateway to a happy, healthy life. Join our community at www.famousapple.com. See you next time.